Washington Democrats want to jam through trillions of dollars in reckless spending all by themselves, they can raise the debt limit all by themselves. Yes, and Republicans all by themselves can kill the good faith and credit of the United States when and the economy along with it. All by themselves. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle. Oh boy. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Uh, uh, where am I here? Uh, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. It's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling and maybe confusing edition of the Bradcast. <laughs> we will see. We will find out because, boy, everything is kind of confusing right now, especially in Washington, D.C. Uh, coming up momentarily on the Bradcast, we will be joined by congressional expert and historian Norm Ornstein. Uh, <laughs> that's not helpful, Desi. <laughs> Sorry. That's not... Norm Ornstein uh, will be here to discuss, uh, boy, uh, we are really getting a good look at the ugly legislative sausage-making process right now in Congress of late, uh, As and with incredibly high stakes, too, by the way. It's not just sausage-making. It's not just legislation. This is high stakes for the nation, certainly for the Democratic Party, Uh, As they uh, try to come to an agreement on Joe Biden's currently three point five trillion dollar proposed build back better agenda, the budget reconciliation package uh, paired along with the one point five trillion dollar bipartisan reconciliation uh, infrastructure, I, I should say, infrastructure package. That is all part of the same proposal and which Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have all vowed to pass as one at the same time, since Democratic moderates want the smaller of those two bills to pass, while progressives only agreed to support that smaller infrastructure bill if the larger uh, $3.5 trillion bill was adopted at the same time. So it's a little give and take there. 
There are some uh, deadlines coming up next week on that give and take with a promised vote on Monday, September 27, promised by Nancy Pelosi to the so-called Democratic moderates on the smaller bipartisan bill in the House, which has already passed the Senate. She agreed, she promised that there would be a vote on September 27 in order to get Uh, the support of the moderates on even moving that larger package forward for debate in both the House and the Senate, as progressives say that they will vote against the smaller package if the larger one is not completed in time to vote on both of them together. Yes, if that's confusing, it's because it's confusing. But if that larger $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill is not actually completed in time in the Senate for this vote in the House on uh, on the smaller bill on Monday and the House goes ahead to approve that $1.5 trillion package anyway, the one that's already been approved in the Senate, does that mean that Democratic moderates will then pull the old switcheroo and they will not support the larger bill? It is. This is, of course, the, the legislative minefield that we told you a few weeks ago uh, that the Democrats were going to somehow have to deftly work their way through. And we will get Norm Ornstein's thoughts on all of this as he is the professional. Uh, but at the very same time, Republicans are threatening to vote against the arcane debt ceiling, the debt limit, the amount of money that Congress is uh, allowed to spend to pay off our debts on stuff that we have already committed to. You know, like the huge tax cuts that Republicans approved in 2017 all by themselves, as you heard Mitch McConnell you know, reference what the Democrats are doing now, trying to pass this budget reconciliation bill all by themselves. He yes. said he hopes you don't remember that they passed that tax cut uh, yeah, bill. Two trillion dollars all by themselves, all by themselves in 2017. And when they did, guess what? Democrats joined with them to raise this stupid debt ceiling in order to pay for it all. Uh, and so now that debt ceiling is up for a vote again. It's a stupid uh, process that shouldn't even have to be done at all because it's about approving, you know, uh, raising money in order to pay for the stuff that we have already committed to paying to, including over the past four years of Donald Trump, when Republicans spent all kinds of money for all sorts of stuff. But now that there's a Democrat in the White House and Democrats control both chambers of Congress, Republicans are threatening to default on promised U.S. funding. Again, for stuff that we have already bought, money that we already owe people. Uh, That would be a terrifying crisis if they actually follow through with what they seem to be planning to follow through with, sending the U.S. into default. Mitch McConnell knows that, in fact, Democrats cannot get the uh, uh, pass the debt ceiling by themselves, not if the Republicans choose to filibuster it. And all of that, if they do, would plummet the good faith and credit rating of the United States of America, an unthinkable notion that has never occurred before, but that Republicans are actually, As you heard McConnell there threatening to do right now with the current debt limit running out as of October 1. 
Also, of course, there is the fight to counter the insurrectionist right-wing voter suppression bills that are being adopted in GOP-controlled states around the country. To counter that with the Freedom to Vote Act proposal from Democrats in the Senate, supposedly agreed to by all 50 Democrats in the Senate, but which cannot be passed unless either 10 Republicans agree to support it, which they will not, or Democrats agree to reform the filibuster in the Senate in some way to allow for passage of democracy-related bills with just 50 votes in the upper chamber. On that point, Ornstein is, uh, as we have been, quite bullish, in fact. He recently co-authored a paper at Brookings Institution and an op-ed at Washington Post arguing that he believes that Senate Democrats will actually change the filibuster in order to pass the incredibly good Freedom to Vote Act. Incredibly good on many fronts, not the least of which is that it mandates hand-marked paper ballots for all voters who want to use them at the polling place. But the question is, will Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, both Democrats, will they agree to make the necessary changes to the filibuster to see it adopted into law, since they say that both of them support the Freedom to Vote Act? Well, I suspect Norm has some thoughts on that. And then, as all of these minefields and sausage-making is uh, being waded through carefully over the next several days and weeks, what happens if Democrats do not get that $3.5 trillion package loaded with all sorts of stuff from health care and child tax credit expansion to major climate change initiatives? What happens if that does not pass? And perhaps the $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill along with it. In fact, none of it would pass. This is the entirety of Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda. Well, conventional beltway wisdom suggests that that will be the end of Biden's presidency. And though uh, conventional beltway wisdom is not always right, it very well may may be the case here uh, if, in fact... The Biden agenda cannot move forward. But even if Democrats do reach an agreement on years of long overdue stuff that they're now forced to put into this one single reconciliation bill because they can pass it with a simple majority, presuming that folks like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema agree, will the Senate parliamentarian even allow the stuff that Democrats want to include in this package? This reconciliation, this budget reconciliation idea is supposed to allow for budget-related items, items that are mainly budget-related or that have a big effect on the national budget to be put through without the filibuster, avoiding the filibuster, to be put through with a simple minority vote. Well, as the New York Times reported this past weekend, the Senate parliamentarian dealt a major setback on Sunday to Democrats' plans to use their $3.5 trillion social policy, the budget reconciliation bill, to create a pathway to citizenship for an estimated 8 million undocumented immigrants. Elizabeth McDonough, The Senate parliamentarian, who serves as the chamber's arbiter of its own rules, wrote that the, quote, policy changes of this proposal far outweigh the budgetary impacts scored to it, and it is not appropriate for inclusion in reconciliation. That, according to a copy of her decision that was obtained by The New York Times. 
Uh, really? She did? That was her decision? What business is it of hers as to whether the policy implications are larger than the budgetary impacts, which, uh, frankly, to decide about the policy implications, that seems rather subjective to me and, frankly, rather political to me, a political ruling, it seems. That's not her job. Democrats had been seeking to grant legal status to undocumented people brought to the U.S. as children known as dreamers. Immigration advocates had pushed the plan as their best chance this Congress uh, has to improve the lives of millions of immigrants after attempts to reach a bipartisan deal with Republicans fell apart, as they always do, as they have for years on end, because Republicans are not dealing in good faith on these issues when it comes to immigration, because frankly, their voters won't let them, because their voters have been brain poisoned by Fox News and the rest of the right-wing media industrial complex. And if they allowed any kind of immigration reform, then Republicans would have nothing to run on. Correct. So they'd, you know, they'd rather keep fighting about this year after year and pretending that uh, Democrats want to bring in millions of undocumented immigrants so they can become voters somehow for Democrats, even though none of these proposals actually give citizenship uh, to these in- immigrants, but rather a pathway, a long pathway to it. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said in a statement in response to the parliamentarian's decision here, quote, we are deeply disappointed in this decision, but the fight to provide lawful status for immigrants in budget reconciliation continues. That's good to hear. He added the Democrats would be meeting with the parliamentarian to discuss the matter and possibly some new options. Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, the number two Democrat, and Senator Alex Padilla of California also released the statement saying they had prepared an alternative proposal for the parliamentarian's consideration. Meanwhile, immigration advocates were already urging the Democrats who control the Senate Uh, to vote to simply disregard McDonough's decision and include the immigration overhaul in the package anyway. And why not? It is true. The Democrats who control the Senate can simply vote to ignore the ruling of the parliamentarian. They control the Senate. They set the rules. You know that Republicans would do the same thing in in similar circumstances. They can change the rules anytime they like, presuming of course, that they can get a majority of 50 Democrats and a tie-breaking vote by the vice president. Grisa Martinez-Rosas, director of the United We Dream Action Fund, called the parliamentarian a, quote, unelected advisor, said Democrats in Congress, quote, hold all the power to do the right thing. That is true. They do. But once again, whether supposed Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema will let the rest of the caucus actually do the right thing, well, that is another question. McDonough's decisions are merely advisory, the Times notes, but several Democratic senators have indicated they would be reluctant to overrule her. Well, fine. But to say that this is not a large enough budget issue to be included in a budget reconciliation package that only requires a simple majority to pass, that some, somewhat strains reason, it seems to me. It's a huge budget issue, and I, I hope we get Ornstein to ring in on this matter as well shortly. Under the Democrats' proposal, undocumented immigrants 
would have been eligible to become U.S. citizens if they passed background and health checks and paid a $1,500 fee, among many other requirements. According to preliminary figures from the Congressional Budget Office, the budgetary cost of the changes in immigration law affecting health care benefits, Medicaid spending, tax credits, the budgetary costs exceed $139 billion over the next 10 years. That seems like quite a bit of a budgetary impact, if you ask me. Further, Democrats estimate the legislation's, uh, the legalization push would add $1.5 trillion to the U.S. economy over the next decade, and it would create 400,000 jobs. How is that not a huge budgetary impact? $1.5 trillion added to the U.S. economy. Democrats had been hoping to include the immigration overhaul in the sweeping legislation to expand the social safety net, which they plan to muscle through under fast-track process known as reconciliation, shielding it from a Republican filibuster. But in her decision, McDonough repeatedly emphasized the vastness of the policy change proposed by the Democrats. She wrote, the reasons that people risk their lives to come to this country to escape religious and political persecution, famine, war, unspeakable violence and lack of opportunity in their home countries cannot be measured in federal dollars. She argued that changing the law to clear the way to legal status for millions of undocumented immigrants is a tremendous and enduring policy change that dwarfs its budgetary impact. And while it may be an enduring policy change, that does not appear to be any of her damn business. <laughs> the question that she is supposed to judge is, does this have a major budgetary impact? And with $139 billion in health care spending and an added $1.5 trillion coming into the U.S. economy to help pay for it, yeah, it clearly has a very substantial budgetary impact. The parliamentarian, at least in my opinion, is simply wrong here, and she is seemingly playing in politics, which is decidedly not her job. The question is, does it have a substantial budgetary impact? The answer is clearly yes. The fact that she believes that the policy impact is even larger than the budgetary impact, well, that's great. That's her opinion. But she's the unelected parliamentarian. Immigration advocates have readied some backup plans in case the parliamentarian did not rule in their favor. Carrie Talbot, the deputy director of the Immigration Hub, said immigration advocates will not give up. She said in a statement, this is not the end of the process. As we've said before, this is not a one-off. We have always known that this would be a back and forth where we would have to present several options. What we know is true. She said a path to permanent residency and citizenship has a significant budgetary impact, has great bipartisan support, and above all, is critical to America's recovery. I agree. But, you know, I ain't the Senate parliamentarian. I ain't even a senator. But the fact that an unelected bureaucrat gets to decide unilaterally whether stuff of this huge import is adopted by Congress, well, that seems quite counter to the idea of representative democracy to me. 
Then again, the Senate is barely even a small d democratic institution. While the 50 senators who uh, caucus with the Democrats currently hold the barest of majorities with just 50 seats, they represent more than 40 million more Americans than the Republicans in the Senate do, even though they hold the same 50 seats. With a Democrat in the White House giving a Democratic vice president the ability to break any ties in the Senate, well, you know, that gives the Democrats a majority, but just barely. Without that, had there been a Republican in the White House, the Democrats would have no majority at all. And even with majority control, they still can't seem to pass emergency voting rights legislation unless 10 Republicans agree to join them. That is, unless they re agree to reform the filibuster somehow. And, as noted, on that, Norm Ornstein, who has been studying politics and elections and the Congress for more than 40 years at the right-wing American Enterprise Institute, well, he believes the Democrats not only can reform the filibuster, but in fact, they will. They will overcome the obstacles to do it, he argues. Well, without it and without passage of the Biden Build Back Better agenda, Democrats, along with the nation, frankly, may be on the road to nowhere or even someplace worse at this point. Norm Ornstein joins us next to try to help us make sense of all of this. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, we know where we're going, but we don't know where we've been. And we know what we're knowing, but we can't say what we've seen. And we're not little children, and we know what we want, and the future is certain. can't be on the road to nowhere. We've got to be on the road to somewhere. We've got to get somewhere positive. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Democrats in Congress must get somewhere, get something done. And frankly, they got to get there quickly because the road does not lead to nowhere. The road leads to autocracy and insurrection and ruin, I fear, at this rate without decisive action, in this case, from the Democrats, even if decisive and Democrats are not necessarily words that anyone frequently puts together. 
what are we facing? A debt ceiling fight where Republicans are once again playing a very dangerous game of chicken with the national debt and the willingness of Congress to commit to pay for the stuff that we have already bought or otherwise face default on those commitments, along with the downgrading of the nation's credit and all the ruin and financial catastrophe that comes with stepping over that particular cliff. One that Democrats don't actually have any real control of, I don't think, at the moment, as the GOP holds the U.S. hostage again on that front. The internecine battle among Democrats themselves, where a handful of so-called moderates appear to be holding the rest of the caucus hostage when it comes to Joe Biden's proposed $3.5 trillion Build Back Better program. At the center of his agenda for a transformative expansion of health care, child care, parental leave, and perhaps most importantly, the nation's first major effort to tackle our climate emergency with a program to massively reduce our greenhouse gas emissions output that is causing catastrophic global warming. And, of course, the fight to stave off voter suppression efforts by GOP-controlled states who are passing bills to restrict voting and allow partisan Republican legislatures to simply overturn election results that they don't like. For that, even West Virginia's Senator Joe Manchin has agreed to a compromise bill called the Freedom to Vote Act, which would be a transformative election reform bill. Easily the most transformative since the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the likes of which I never thought I would see in my lifetime, frankly. Though while Manchin and Arizona's uh, Kirsten Cinema both claim to support that bill, unlike the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better agenda, which could otherwise also be passed without any Republican support on voting rights. Both Democrats, Manchin and Cinema, still seem to suggest that they are unwilling to reform the Senate filibuster in order to get it passed, placing arcane Senate rules over the urgent need to try and save democracy itself in advance of the 2022 and 2024 elections. On that front, however, maybe some good news. At least if you listen to folks like The Two Norms, that would be Norman Eisen of the leftish-leaning Brookings Institution and Norman Ornstein of the right-leaning American Enterprise Institute, who just last week published at The Washington Post an op-ed that is quite optimistically headlined, Seven Reasons to Think Senate Democrats Will Actually Change the Filibuster based on what they describe as a, quote, brazen nationwide assault on voting rights of a kind we've not seen since Jim Crow was established after the Civil War. They go on to argue correctly that some are skeptical that Democrats in Washington will respond. But the two norms right. After decades of studying and working with the Senate, we think the signs point the other way. There are seven reasons to believe that the filibuster will be reformed and voting rights legislation will be passed by the House and Senate and signed into law by President Biden. And, well, I'm sort of tempted to leave things right there on that wildly hopeful note, but there may be just a bit more to this story that needs explaining. For that explanation, we are joined by one of those norms. Norm Ornstein is a longtime congressional historian with a Ph.D. in political science. He is a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute, where he has been studying politics, elections, 
and the U.S. Congress for more than four decades. Dr. Orenstein's articles and opinion pieces have been published, well, pretty much everywhere. And he's also a contributing editor, uh, editor and columnist for The Atlantic. His two most recent books of many are 2012's Prescient, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism with Thomas Mann, and more recently, One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported, and I may be at least one or more of those things. That with E.J. Dion and Thomas Mann. Dr. Ornstein, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Great to be with you, Brad. Uh, you know, uh, I, I've got a lot to talk to you about today, Norm, including what I'm, I'm going to see as a hopeful outlook on breaking the democracy logjam in the Senate uh, with possible filibuster reform. But as I don't think we've spoken directly before, I want to note uh, quickly, the first time I heard your name, or at least you came, I came to understand who you were, it was a hilarious satirical book by Al Franken in 1998, Long before he actually got into elected politics, it was titled Why Not Me? The Inside Story of the Making and Unmaking of the Franken Presidency, in which, if I recall, you were his campaign manager for some reason that I'm not really certain of, other than it was hilarious. As as noted, it was a hysterical book, sort of prescient in a number of ways. How did that happen? Did you know Al Franken before you ended up starring in his book as his best friend and, and top campaign consultant? Uh, yes, we've actually been dear friends for more than 30 years uh, and family friends. Um, so we you know, talked about uh, this book along the way as I talked to him about his other books. Mm-hmm. I was his uh, sidekick uh, and <laughs> the first Comedy Central pollster on Indecision 92, the uh-huh. first Comedy Central coverage of uh, politics, the precursor of what we then saw with uh, John Stewart and others uh, mm-hmm. going forward. And uh, the book was, uh, in fact, prescient in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, first of all, that we did a, uh, we had a lunch at the Palm Restaurant here in Washington at the earliest stages with uh, Howard Feynman mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, and Al and I, uh, and if I recall, Mandy Grunwald, and we batted around what could possibly be a plausible campaign theme for Al to run on, mm-hmm. and Howard came up with outrageous ATM fees. That's um, right. And, of course, just a couple of years later, we had an explosion over outrageous ATM fees. Yes. Then we batted around who would be his running mate, uh-huh. and... Uh, we ended up with Joe Lieberman because oh, yes, it, we right. wanted a balanced ticket, a Reformed Jew and an Orthodox Jew. Right. <laughs> um, and that was months before Joe Lieberman became Al Gore's running mate. That's right. I forgot um, about that element of the book. Uh, and then uh, we had uh, an all-Jewish cabinet when he won. Right. And, and by the way, he I mean, we can also note that he ran on a bombastic populist ticket as an outrageous and unethical and corrupt egomaniac. Um, <laughs> does that remind you of anybody? No, I'm sure uh, I don't. I'm sure I don't know what you're talking about, Norm. And in the book, I was his chief of staff after being his campaign manager, uh-huh. and uh, ultimately went to jail. 
uh, <laughs> after he was impeached and removed from office. So only one part of that, unfortunately, wasn't true, uh, at least about uh, the president, uh, mm-hmm. who the book uh, precursed, as we say. Or uh, about you going to jail. Yet. Right. Yet. Um, yes. we'll, we'll, we'll see how uh, it goes. You know, we can only hope. <laughs> uh, uh, on to uh, more serious matters, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, citing your uh, your new paper published at Brookings Institution with Mel Barnes, Norm Eisen, Jeffrey Mandel, you described last week at Washington Post that, quote, the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen did not end when Trump left office. It has only intensified. Uh, with all of these bills being passed in uh, by Republicans around the country trying to undo the things that made the 2020 election one of the most successful in history. A number of these bills, uh, you write, would even make it possible for Trump's allies to take steps to reverse elections in the future, irrespective of the will of the voters. But you go on to point to the solution, which is congressional action now via the bill known as the For the People Act, which all 50 senators who caucus with the Democrats are supposedly in favor of. But to see that bill passed... The Senate would need to be willing to reform the filibuster to allow a simple majority to do so. And you all argue quite optimistically that this is not only possible, but even likely uh, via sort of seven steps or ideas that you believe could or even will get us there. Please walk us through what you see as the most likely path for this, uh, Norman, at, at this point, because right now, you know, the conventional wisdom is that these things appear pretty grim in this regard, and, and I think we could use a, a little bit of hope today, if you got any for us. Sure. So let's just start with a few uh, of the realities on a roadmap here. One is that we're seeing more and more, I think, intense understanding on the part of Democrats in the Senate that the road to accomplishing significant goals and a time frame that's short for Democrats uh, has to require some change in their rules. Mm -hmm. That Joe Manchin, who, getting back to Al Franken, Al Franken Mm -hmm. and I, uh, ten years ago, worked together on a proposal that would, uh, we would argue, restore the filibuster, put the burden on the minority, flip the numbers so that it doesn't take 60 votes Mm -hmm. to end debate and move to uh, action, but 41 votes which would have to be on the floor continuously Mm -hmm. to continue that debate, make the minority have to pay a heavy price for uh, obstruction, Mm -hmm. and with a leader tough enough, you could go round the clock, uh, disrupt them, and ultimately succeed. And Manchin has spoken favorably of that, as he has of some other potential changes in the filibuster. Uh, We believe that if Manchin agreed that Kristen Sinema would also agree, and mm-hmm. some of the others who are leery about changing the rules would go along as well. Uh, and there are many, many avenues and routes to potentially reforming the filibuster, as we pointed out, especially in the longer paper, and as some of us have done mm-hmm. in other venues. The overreaction, or let's, I don't want to call it overreaction, the over-the-top actions by uh, a, it's not a party anymore, the Republican cult, mm-hmm. to try, as you described it, not just to obstruct votes and to suppress votes, but to intimidate election workers and overturn legitimate results. 
I think, may have gone too far and created a greater sense of urgency among Democrats that this is now an existential threat to our fundamental constitutional way and uh, freedom and democracy. So those are all significant. Just as significant is that the Freedom to Vote Act, the compromise that was put together, Mm -hmm. quite brilliantly, I think, by Amy Klobuchar Mm -hmm. working with Jeff Merkley and Joe Manchin and a number of others, that incorporated not just the key components of the uh, For the People Act, but also the elements that had been put together by Senator Raphael Warnock Mm -hmm. and uh, Representative John Sarbanes that would put a halt to these efforts to overturn election results, uh, make it much, much more difficult for federal elections. Mm is now out there, and Joe Manchin is deeply invested in it. He put a lot of time and effort into it. He uh, believed that he could put together a reasonable package, and then, because the current rules, he thinks, encourage uh, supermajorities and bipartisan support, he's out there trying to get 10 Republicans. He will not get 10 Republicans. Right. I would be surprised if he gets two Republicans. Correct. (laughs) And that means that either you say, I did all of that for nothing, or you find another way. And that way may be um, making an exception to the 60-vote hurdle for election issues. Article 1 very clearly gives the responsibility and authority for Congress to regulate the time, manner, and place of federal elections and to uh, supersede state actions uh, or local actions, right. and, you know, create an exception if that's uh, the best way to get it done, or change the filibuster rule more generally and have a fight on the floor about all of this. And I think they've got a reasonably good chance. Now, is it a certainty? No. Uh, given the where the parties are, with a 50-50 Senate, a three-vote margin in the House, and a completely obstructionist Republican group. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't be certain of anything. But I think we are further along on a path to very possibly having something good happen probably in October uh, than uh, most of the commentary uh, gives us credit for, gives it credit for. Yeah, and, you know, I've sort of been thinking along those same lines as well. You you sort of look at the the actual comments that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema has, ha- have made about this. They haven't said no we will not reform the filibuster period. They, they sort of say they don't want to kill it, they want to retain it, but they do appear open anyway to reform if you read very closely <laughs> into, into what they say. Uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, that the cinema you thought would, would come along if Manchin agreed, and, and when you said that, I thought, boy, that part of the sentence is doing a lot of work there, if Manchin <laughs> agreed. Uh, but it brings us back to, you know, he's also blocking for now, along with cinema, the three point five trillion dollar uh, infrastructure bill. Is this a case of, you know, where Manchin will choose to play ball on one or the other of these two major initiatives that he's currently blocking right now, both election reform and the Build Back Better agenda in order to show, oh, he was willing to meet Democrats at least halfway on one of those two things. And if so, Norm, which of those two does he allow to move forward, given that many believe Democrats are dead in the water if both of those initiatives fail to become law? 
I don't think this is an either-or proposition, Brad. Um, you know, Joe Manchin throughout his career has been a uh, transactional politician. He will do some give and take. Um, right now, certainly, the burden is on Bernie Sanders, uh, the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, other members of the Senate, Democrats in the Senate, to come up with a compromise. Bernie, of course, is, uh, you know, appropriately, righteously indignant that he started at $6 trillion and came down to 3.5, right. and there was a general agreement among Democrats in the Senate, mm-hmm. and now they want to move it down significantly further. But I think if you look at the reality of how you can pull these bills together, you could do a bill that's, say, $2.2, $2.5 trillion, but that actually preserves all of your core priorities. Mm -hmm. You can cut the number of years. Right. Also, Manchin has said that his main concern is inflation. Mm -hmm. Well, you're only concerned about inflation in this case if you're adding to the debt by trillions of dollars. Uh, If you come up with the revenues, then you're actually doing something that, if not being revenue neutral, Mm -hmm. would represent what, in fact, is a pretty trivial amount as a share of our uh, gross domestic product. So it's it's workable, I think, to come up with a package that would be satisfactory. The the clock is ticking. uh, I think the the problem may be as severe in the House. Uh, We have a pledge by the Speaker that there will be a vote on that much smaller bipartisan package. Mm -hmm. Um, that involves, you know, new spending closer to a half a trillion than right. uh, to anything more. Um, but, uh, you know, there are a variety of ways in which that can go, and one of the things that could happen is that the bill passes on the 27th, that you get a vote. I think it would have to pass with a lot of Republican votes, and there, those Republican votes may be there mostly because they want to embarrass the Democrats, because right. they'll be a substantial share of the more progressive uh, types who may vote against it. Mm -hmm. But let's say it passes. There's nothing in the rules or the law or the Constitution that requires the Speaker of the House Mm -hmm. to send it to the President immediately. Right. So let's say you hold it for a week or two until you can come to an agreement on uh, the reconciliation package and an agreement that would get the 50 votes. Right. And then you move quickly to get that through the Senate and send it to the House. And the Speaker says, okay, we're just about there. They're both going to go to the President. I think you probably are going to be able to get the votes to make that happen. Now, I think it's dicey, but I also think it's doable. It's dicey. It is certainly risky. Does does the Speaker of the House, though she doesn't have to, in this case, uh, send it to the President's desk immediately, does she have to send it eventually? Is that uh, something that the, the no, bill must go? as a matter of fact. Um, you know, if, if necessary, uh, although obviously it would be unprecedented, she could just hold it until the Congress goes out. Then it would have to be started all uh, anew. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not going to happen, right. uh, I think. But the fact is that the, the you know, little group of eight moderates in the House who think they have all the cards really don't have all the cards. Um, and at some point, the question becomes, knowing that you're going to have to do this with Democrats alone, knowing that if you don't succeed in getting some of these fundamental changes through an infrastructure package, 
the public, which knows the Democrats are in charge, are not going to you know deal with the nuance that they only have a margin of three in the House and mm-hmm. they have no margin in the Senate. They're going to judge you on what, on your performance, and then it becomes a question of whether the Speaker. And there has uh, not been, certainly in our lifetimes, and I think long before that, a more adept speaker at making things happen than Nancy Pelosi can probably make it happen. And if uh, my judgment on this is, if you get a $2 trillion bill that goes along with the almost $2 trillion American Rescue Plan, Mm -hmm. the stimulus package that passed initially, you're still in what I would call great society territory. But the Great Society passed because there were huge, swollen Democratic majorities in both houses. To be able to accomplish this with the narrow margins would be a, a, just a remarkable achievement. And there's still a you know a, a reasonable chance it can be done. The debt ceiling is another issue uh, entirely, and I'm actually a little more concerned about that because I think we have a group of Republicans. You know, if you got Republicans like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and Christy Nome and uh, uh, Reeves, uh, Tate Reeves, Tate and Reeves, yeah. so many others who are willing to let hundreds of thousands of people die uh, for their own political uh, purposes, can I believe that Mitch McConnell and his colleagues would let the nation go into default uh, and cause the economy to go into huge upheaval? Uh, sadly, yes. Mm. That's a troubling note that I'd love to explore more, but I know I have to get you out, and I want to get two quick questions in for you, if I could, Norm. Yeah. And this is sort of an even more arcane Senate sausage-making point even than the filibuster or the debt limit. Uh, The Senate parliamentarian recently determined that it was against existing Senate rules to include immigration reform in the uh, $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package, uh, which could otherwise be passed, will otherwise be passed by a simple majority uh, on issues that are largely budget-related. She blocked it not because it wasn't a huge budgetary issue, because it is. It includes spending on health care and tax credits of about $139 billion. It would add $1.5 trillion to the U.S. economy, 400,000 jobs over the next decade. But because she she says it it can't work because it's an even bigger political issue than a budget issue. But are political issues even within her purview? Isn't she supposed to simply decide whether this is a budget-related, substantially budget-related matter or not? So uh, there was one part of that ruling that I took significant issue with, which is when she discussed whether... Uh, bills of this sort are bipartisan in nature. That is not uh, her job and right. not within her purview. Right. But, you know, I had a discussion with Lawrence O'Donnell last night on this, and I'm largely with Lawrence. I think you could look at this issue as you could look at the minimum wage. And under the way the law and the bird rule work, you know, come to the conclusion that she came to, that this is not something that reconciliation is made for. So there are two directions in which to go with this. Uh, the first is you change the bird rule and you change the reconciliation rules. Mm-hmm. The second, and really, which can be done by which can be done by Democrats with a majority vote. Can be done by Democrats. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, to be frank, if you look at the minimum wage and look at this, it's not at all clear to me that uh, Chuck Schumer and many of his uh, leadership colleagues 
are uh, distraught about this because it's not clear that they had 50 votes for a reconciliation package that had either of those in. Mm. So, gotcha. and some, you know, you take them out and you're going to enrage a large share of your caucus in the country. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the fact is the parliamentarian doesn't make these decisions. The parliamentarian issues a an opinion and the uh, Senate can reject it. The presiding mm-hmm. officer right. can take the opposite position. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there are reasons why they're not. But the larger point here is that you get things like the minimum wage and immigration thrown into reconciliation, awkwardly thrown in. Why? Because of the goddamn filibuster. Yes. Because there's no other way to get it done with yep. 50 votes. Yep. And so you create this ungainly, uh, you know, hodgepodge of things as a way of trying to circumvent the rules, and the better way to deal with it is to change the damn rules. Yeah, uh, you end up uh, trying to stuff, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of legislation into a single package. Uh, Norm, lastly, if this stuff does not happen, particularly the voting stuff, but, you know, even the Biden agenda stuff, uh, with a now thoroughly authoritarian Trumpist right, how much real danger is the republic now in, as you see it, if these things don't come to pass, as you optimistically see, as uh, and, and I join you in that, uh, as optimistically see actually getting done? But what if it doesn't? What kind of trouble are we in? Deep, deep, deep trouble. We're at code blue. I think we're done for, frankly, if they can't do um, both of these things. Uh, the public's going to judge the Democratic Congress on its accomplishments, and the core of these accomplishments now becomes getting something done that stimulates the economy and that deals with our infrastructure needs, climate, and, and including the human infrastructure part. Accomplish it all, and you uh, are on a path, I think, to having significant public approval that government is working. If you don't, um, then I think uh, even the voting issues aside, um, we're not going to have, at minimum, a Democratic House after 2022, and the Senate majority would be uh, in jeopardy as well. Um, The democracy reforms become a key part of this, because even if you pass all of those, you know, major proposals, if they are able to suppress votes using outrageous tactics with a court that'll let them do any of that. But then, even if they don't work and they lose, overturn election results, even in just two, three, or four states, or four, five, or six congressional races, you you could have a majority that just gets taken away from you with the same kinds of tactics that we've seen in places like Russia and uh, Egypt and uh, Turkey and other uh, authoritarian states. So they're both necessary to give us a fighting chance of preserving our fundamental democracy. On that chilling note, Norm Ornstein is the longtime congressional historian, senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute, contributor, contributing editor and columnist for The Atlantic, author of many books, including It's Even Worse Than It Looks. Uh, And with uh, Norm Eisen at Washington Post, we will link to it. Seven reasons to think Senate Democrats will actually 
Change the filibuster in case you're looking for some hope. And if you're looking for some comedy, uh, he's also the co-star of Al Franken's 1998 hilarious book, Why Not Me? Check that one out from the bargain bin. Norm, really great speaking with you, my friend. Uh, I look forward to doing it again soon in the future. You bet, Brad. Thanks, Norm. Okay, let's uh, let's take a quick break here on those uh, both dark and hopeful <laughs> notes. Uh, yes. I have some thoughts. I saw you furiously writing as well, Desi <laughs> Doyen. Quick break. We'll come back with our closing few minutes of the broadcast to try to make sense of it all. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via brandblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Yes, that's a much better road than the road to nowhere. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Boy, a lot to uh, uh, bite into there in that conversation with Norm Ornstein. Thanks again to him for joining us. Uh, I want to clarify actually quickly one point that he made about how the, uh, the bill... Uh, this uh, $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill that uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema said, I will not pass a bill that's $3.5 trillion, even though it's all paid for, uh, as Ornstein mentioned. But for whatever dumb reason, if they're insisting on a smaller bill, I want you to know that if you if if they come out with a smaller bill, let's say $3 trillion, let's say $2.5 trillion, let's say $2 trillion, well, you can include... As he was hinting there, you can include all of the things that are currently in the bill, but just offer them for fewer years out. So this bill w- would apply to the next 10 years. One of the things it would do would e- extend the child tax credits that are now going out to all parents, $300 per child uh, on a monthly basis. Well, that was in the uh, American Rescue Plan, the the Biden's COVID bill that, again, no Republicans voted for. That only extends out to a year. So they want to extend that for 10 years. And if, you know, if it's currently in the bill for 10 years and they say, all right, you know what, we'll change it to five years instead of 10 years. Well, those payments will still go out for five years and good luck to the Congress who five years from now wants to cut off these payments, these monthly checks to parents. It will save a huge amount of money on the initial reconciliation bill, but it would still give us the same policy. Right. So it would be basically if you cut it from 10 years to five years, then the cost would be half on the front end, right. and that might fall under whatever arbitrary measure Cinema and Mansion are clinging to right now. Correct. And so we can still get all the same stuff, just not for as many years, potentially kicking the can down the road for the next Congress to have to deal with. So that that was one point I wanted to clarify, because that may be coming in the days and weeks ahead. And also to note that, you know, while well, he says if if this stuff doesn't happen, this nation will be in deep, deep, deep trouble, I think was his quote. Yes. He also 
sees what I have been seeing on the path forward here for both the reconciliation bill and the voting bill, which, again, would be a remarkable achievement if they can get both of these things through for both Joe Biden and and the Democrats. If they can pull this off, as uh, Ornstein noted there uh, in, you know, this would be right up there with LBJ's Great Society territory or even FDR's New Deal territory, plus voting rights. So... Plus climate change, which yes. doesn't have is not just meaningful for the nation, but also for the world. Yep. Kind of important for that. Kind of. Yeah. So, you know, I've been bullish about them pulling off this impossible feat. We will see if I'm right. I think it's going to be ugly, as we have been discussing today. It's going to be difficult. I but think it's going to get even uglier. Yes, so buckle up for buckle that. Buckle up. But I think it can get done. I join Ornstein in that. Des, I think you're less less uh, bullish still. Uh, yes, I am usually uh, less bullish on things like that. I'm glad that you and Norm are cautiously, very cautiously very optimistic. Cautious. But for me, um, I'm really concerned because broken government benefits Republicans in elections, especially in the upcoming yep. 2022 midterm elections. And so, no one knows how to break government better than Republicans. Exactly. And so it's a matter of does the public understand what Republicans are doing to our democracy? And do they understand what is really at stake here? Yes. That's the question. And it's hard to understand. I mean, just review this past hour and how confusing it all is. I hope it's not too confusing. Hopefully we made things a little bit clearer for you. If not, well, we'll try again tomorrow. My thanks to Norm Ornstein of The Atlantic and the American Enterprise Institute and to all of you. Oh, and to Desi Doyen, our producer, (laughs) and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or just need to hear it again to try to understand it, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And my thanks to those of you who help us stay on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email if you have thoughts on all of this. I'd love to hear from you. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Or you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters, where I am simply the Brad Blog. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Off on the road to Morocco. Hooray! A blow a horn. Everybody duck. It's a green light. Move on, folks. We may run into villains. But we're not afraid to roam Because we read the story And we end up safe at home Yeah, we certainly do get around Like Webster's Dictionary We're Mariah